0: Father, we love you. We are so grateful that you would would make a people and desire them to love you in return, that you would create this space and place of worship where we can give you the glory you deserve and by coming near your presence be transformed ourselves. Truly, you are a marvel and a wonder. We ask, Lord God, Holy Spirit, filling your people more and more in this very place and on this very morning and in our various places. They would open our eyes to see our Lord Jesus in this epiphany season evermore. Bend our wills to serve him, and ignite our hearts to love him. And all these things we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Again, there we go. Um, as I mentioned, uh, we are in the season of epiphany. Um, praise God for, for the, the, the believers, the church through the centuries, that had, the, that had the, the openness to the Holy Spirit, that had the creativity, uh, that had the pastoral care to create a season of epiphany, right? So we, we, in Advent, we come to, um, to, in this season of self-examination and darkness and preparation for Christmas, we, we, we walk through that time together, we hit the incarnation, and we have, we have 12 days of Christmas. Who knew? Right? If, if you don't know about the, se- the season of Christmas, you think that you go, no, Christmas day, maybe Christmas night, silent night, and you're off again. But no, we have a whole season to let the preparation done in Advent have its way with us as we ponder, worship, and live in this amazing truth of the incarnation of God. But then we also have this time of this extended period where in words, scriptures, prayers, liturgies, we look for God to help us see Jesus revealing himself more and more, not just to the people of Israel, but to ours, to ourselves. And so this this whole season in which we we look for an epiphany, we look for Jesus to reveal himself to us more fully more deeply, more completely this year than last year. And so we don't, we don't, we don't get to make this up and we couldn't have done it anyway, right? Your, your, Your staff and clergy didn't sit around on Wednesday and go, man, what should we do Sunday? I have an idea. Let's talk about the epiphanies of God, right? We wouldn't have gotten there, but we've received this over the centuries from the believers and the church, and we live in it very, very gratefully. Amen? Amen. So with that in mind, we're in the third Sunday of Epiphany. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to Luke and chapter 4. If you need a Bible, there should be one right in front of you in the back of the, of the back of the chairs. And we begin again at verse 14, Luke chapter 4 and verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So uh, Bible reading 101, we have a passage before us that has its own contours, its own sort of uh, limits to it. We, we see it with, through, the, through this, this, this beam of light, but we always in the scriptures want to sort of broaden that beam and ask what else is going on that this is a part of, right? It's just looking at the context. So we want to know how to get, because knowing the context, we will understand more deeply what it is that we're actually reading. And this, the text often gives us a, a clue, right? And Jesus, Jesus returned. Well, where did he return from? Is the question we want to ask. And it says, in the power of the spirit to Galilee. And so we easily go back then uh, a, few, a few other passages. And, and we know that right immediately before he came to Nazareth, he was, he was teaching and preaching throughout northern Israel. But immediately before that, that gets about a sentence, you'll see. But immediately before that was the temptation with Satan. Immediately before that is baptism. And so his baptism then, of course, we remember, oh, that glorious event uh, when the father spoke personal words of love and affirmation to his son. When the son was open to those words and God, the Holy Spirit, actually descended on him, uh, filling, anointing, commissioning, even coronating him in this way and so we we, that was carried forward into this very verse the power of the spirit and then we very interestingly when we look at what he at what happened next uh, he's anointed by God he's, he's given his favor he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's sent out into the wilderness where he meets the tempter and Satan then does this very interesting thing Satan is in many ways trying to get Jesus to give a false epiphany He's trying to get Jesus to reveal himself in a false way through false means with false implications. Twice of uh, the, the three temptations, twice he says, if you are the son of God, prove it, reveal yourself, show us, don't be hidden. But the ways that he tempts him to do this are but the ways of either power or sucking up the power, Right. The two ways are to make stones into bread or throw yourself off off, off the the temple, right? And then miraculous and powerful things will happen. Do something of power. Make something change. Show that you are the king, that you are the Messiah. Show us by acts of power or at the very least suck up to power because I'll give you all the power you want if you'll just worship me. But this is not the way Jesus reveals himself. This is not the way that God reveals himself through Jesus. He is not revealed through acts of status-building, self-important power. This reveals a false God. This reveals more what Satan has probably been doing for centuries and centuries, and has worked thus far. Why not try it with Jesus? Can't I tempt everybody to seek status? Can't I seek people to, to exercise their power over others? I mean, after all, since the fall, that's been one of our instincts, right? One of our instincts is is to sort of to exercise our power over our circumstances, right? Over our enemies. Heck, over our friends. I want to win. I want to have my way. Now, of course, power is exercised all the time because we just have to do things. But the fact is this. He wants Jesus to reveal his identity as one of power or at least sucking up to power. And Jesus utterly rejects this. He utterly shuts this down. He will not reveal himself in this way. Michael Ramsey, one of the great archbishops of of Canterbury, wrote a small book to um, priests who are about to be ordained called The Christian Priest Today. And he wrote this. um, Do not worry about status how often do we worry about status, right? Am I seen to be important? Am I seen to be influential? Is what I'm saying have an effect? Am I turning rocks into stones, right? Does anybody see me at the corner of the temple and the great things I've done or will do? Oh, God have mercy on us. This is what Ramsey says, do not worry about status. And then he talks, he says, be that as it may, there is only one status that our Lord bids us be concerned with. That is the status of proximity to himself. If a man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there also shall my servant be, John chapter 12. That is our status, to be near to our Lord, wherever he may ask us to go, with him, and it becomes, uh, and then, and then, in the, his own actions, so he goes from this this temptation to be status filled and and power filled and reveal himself by these acts of power and status, and then he stay, begins then to to walk around, and preach and teach in northern Israel, uh, hardly Tinseltown. All right, hardly the high profile part of the country. To be honest. And so he's up there, as Chris helps us imagine just recently, uh, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, River Jordan, Sea of Galilee, Nazareth, Cana. You sort of get the general picture, right? So he's up here in the hills. He's walking. He's going into the synagogues of the local people. He's going to the local believers in their local places of worship, and he is teaching. This is what he has been commissioned to do. He taught in their synagogues, verse 15 says. Being glorified by all. He is clearly called and motivated by telling and being the truth of God for the people of God so that all nations can come to God. Let's do that again. He is committed, he has been commissioned against these big status seeking shows of power and for this local proclamation amongst the local people of God in their local places of worship to tell them about the truth of God and to be that truth. When he speaks, he creates a new reality. It's frankly, it's not unlike Genesis. When Jesus speaks and reveals who is God, he is revealing a new reality. He is revealing a truth about God that may have gotten lost or not remembered. And he is telling the people who is God. This is him. And he creates a new reality when he does that. Now to back up, just to say, no, we don't have to back up. We're not there yet. And so i um, And he comes to Nazareth, and then he comes to Nazareth, uh, where he'd been brought up, right? Uh, Born in Bethlehem, uh, hometown in Capernaum, brought up in in Nazareth. And so the text easily has um, an ambiguous and unknown quality to it. Will people go, oh, Jesus, the hometown guy, we love it. We're so glad he's here. Or will there be a different reaction, which often happens to the hometown guy? We'll see. But as was his custom, as he's been doing across the northern part of Israel, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. So, again, he he physically locates himself and his words amongst the local, highly unknown people of God in their place of worship. He could have gone someplace else. He could have gone to a higher status place, to a secular place where he would have impressed the secular authorities. He could have gone to a more religious place where he would have impressed the religious authorities. But he grounds his ministry from the beginning amongst the local people of God in their local place of worship. He could have gone to their marketplace. But he is in the synagogue. And he gets up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So he has not revealed himself again in contrast to Satan. By raising himself up in weird and status seeking ways. He's simply doing what he's always done. He is being himself. He is being the presence of God amongst the people of God. And he begins then to read the prophet Isaiah. Now then, in the prophet Isaiah, uh, so so far so good. Uh, he's, he's doing his thing, right? He's, he's walking around. He's preaching. He's teaching. He gets the scroll of Isaiah. And this is fine. He comes to this normal worship f- service so far so good. He then reads from chapter 61. Chapter 61 is, is Isaiah presenting another person who is speaking about what is true of him. So throughout Isaiah, we've had this guy, the servant, right? We've had the, the servant passages. We're talking the, the sermon of God, and those often show up in Holy Week and Easter season. We'll hear those in Lent, only a week in Easter. But also there are times in Isaiah when he does this exact same thing. He, he, he recounts another person. It's not Isaiah himself. It's somebody else whom he's presenting who then says these things about himself in relationship to God. Are you, are you with me? And so then Jesus is reading this. Jesus is reading this. And here is what he begins to read in verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, I'll go ahead and give away the game, since we, already, we read it anyway. At the end, Jesus will say, this has been fulfilled in your presence. So we have this very interesting time reading this, because we're hearing the prophet Isaiah presenting the person in, in scriptures he's inspired to talk about, talking about himself of God, and we're hearing Jesus say these things and basically claiming them for himself. So we have this, this, these overlaid things happening. We're hearing God's prophecy through Isaiah about the one who is anointed by God. We have Jesus. And of course, we've just read that he returned to Nazareth in the power of the Spirit. We just read that he was baptized by, the, by John, and the Father spoke to him. He, heard, he was opened to the Father, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him and filled him. So all these things are sort of in the same place and at the same time. So he says that there's a person, Isaiah said there's a person, Jesus reads that, and we'll say that it is him, on whom God has specifically and intentionally chosen. There is a person, a human, it is Jesus, that God has specifically chosen and equipped. This is an epiphany. We're so used to it, we may not get it. But before Jesus was baptized, nobody would have said this about Jesus. It is a new thing that's being revealed. Before Jesus was baptized, nobody would have said, wow, he's the son of God and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. It took an epiphany. It took for the eyes to be opened, for a new action to be done, for new words to create a new reality, for that to be brought to bear. And it is focused on Jesus himself. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And so the epiphany Begins to unravel, unroll itself, not unravel, come together, uh, but to unroll itself. What is true of God, what is true of His anointed one, what He desires to be true of His people, begins to be unrolled. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to speak and create a new reality for the poor. Uh, This word for the poor, in the Hebrew especially, has this sense of, of the really broken poor. Uh, In in the Psalms, we heard that those who live on the ash heap, right, Uh, of the tragically broken, uh, physically, emotionally, circumstantially broken poor, that I have some good news for them. Good news for the the afflicted is a fair way to render this. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind. Uh, He has sent me to bring pardon to the prisoners. Now, if you're not a prisoner, that may not be a big deal. If you're a prisoner, you love hearing that. And we are all prisoners, of course, at some level, aren't we? We're all prisoners at some level. We want to hear this. In a recent 19 Catechism class, we were reading Prince Caspian. So interesting that 80% of the book is leading up to a series of events of crazy liberation, crazy celebration, crazy feasting. It's, it's over the top. It's almost out of control, the way Lewis describes it in Prince Caspian. There's this moment of, of work and work and work and, and getting it wrong, getting it wrong, getting it wrong. And then there's this, this turning. And from there, amazing liberty. And it's played out amongst uh, uh, broken people, amongst sick people, amongst people who are oppressed in their, in their vocation or in their occupation. Interesting. Amongst those who are in school. Little Lewis uh, history probably going on there. Uh, He had a bad time in school. And so there's probably some Lewis history stuff being painted into there. But this amazing liberation that's brought to people who are oppressed. This side of heaven, um, after the fall, too often, in large ways and small, our desire is to control and, frankly, to win and, frankly, to oppress. I will shut you down. I
1: will own you. It is a dark human instinct. And
0: Jesus says we can be released from that. Jesus would release the oppressed and he would have us be those who release the oppressed as well. It is reversed as we hand ourselves over to Jesus, this Jesus and his Holy Spirit. It is reversed. Uh, Recently, it has been very appropriately sort of brought to the fore in in common uh, Christian reading and discussions that when Jesus speaks, he is often speaking to the whole people of God and communally. So he speaks to to the entire community there at Nazareth, these words of release and healing and, and liberty right? He's speaking them for the entire people of God, nation of Israel, that he would desire that they hear these words. We know indeed that these words are for the entire world, especially through the people of God. And this is a good word for us to hear. We need to hear in maybe our 21st century, very individualistic uh, cultures, that not every word of scripture is spoken to me, right? This is a good word to hear. At the same time, the people of God are made of persons of God. Do you hear that? The people of God are made of persons of God. And we very rightly then say, all right, I am a part of this body and this group of whom this is true. And how is this true for me? We very rightly make that move also. We live with these both at the same time. So I'd like to take these last few minutes and I'd like to ask you, Where do you need to begin to experience your own healing? Especially your own release, your own liberty, your own exodus. Maybe it is from your past injuries. Maybe it is from your present battles. Maybe it is from your future fears. Where do you need liberty? Where do you need exodus? Where do you need freedom? Where are you in captive? So take a few minutes, and I would like you to identify something, the circumstance, an interior reality, someplace where you are still a captive to some degree or another. Go ahead and identify that, name it. Sometimes it's hard to do this. So do it as you are able. You may be in a place where you need to look at that thing up to, up close and you need to look at its ugly details and you need to acknowledge that. However, if that is too scary or painful, then hold it away from you. Hold it at arm's length. Hold it out here and take a look at it. That's just fine. But identify and name places of captivity that are still a part of your life.
1: Now pray to God, acknowledging that his promises are true. That his promises that we've just
0: read come through Jesus, absolutely, for his people and for the persons of God. This is indeed something that Jesus offers
1: you. Lean into that. This is something that Jesus offers you.
0: One, um, one practical way that this has shown up uh, amongst your leadership team is we're studying some things by a group called uh, it's all called gravity leadership, and they have a very interesting thing called a grace truth matrix. I'm going to I'll project onto you this may just be my stuff, but I'll project onto you. Um, often grace and truth, I think means um, I bite my lip when I really want to let you have it. Right. What's on my mind is truth, and the grace is that I bite my lip. And there's some grace in that, right? It is better for me to bite my lip than to let fly. But let's face it, that's a pretty low bar, right? That's a, that's a pretty small, uh, pretty, pretty skinny muscles of discipleship at play there. But the scriptures talk about are in fact that, um, I, that I come to God, I release to him this captivity of my judgmentalism, my anger, my impatience, my arrogance. And I ask him to create such a heart in me that I don't even have something that I need to bite my lip about. He creates the heart in me that I don't even have something that is some great virtue that I don't let you hear it. And this, the guys in gravity, and, and when they talked about grace and truth, it was fantastic. They talked about this wonderful idea um, that the truth, is the truth of God how God sees the other person in his grace. So that what we do is we come to that other person, asking God to give us the ability and the reflex to see that person like he sees them and call that out of them. Right? Man, now that's trading up. That's trading up from just biting our lip. Isn't that beautiful? this idea of captivity, and in that, you and I are more released than anybody else. It's sort of like those things when Jesus says, um, you have heard them say that if you just bite your lip, you're you're virtuous, but I tell you that you need a brand new heart. This is the sort of release at the deep levels that Jesus begins to work in us. So the question becomes, Are we, to what extent, and will we do it even more? I'm trying to get out of the habit after about 20 years of saying, we should do this, because usually we're already doing it, right? We should be a people who do this. Well, we are people who are doing this. We just need to be reminded and go deeper. So let's remind ourselves and go deeper that the Holy Spirit can be uh, worked with or, frankly, worked against. Now, regeneration, being born again, that's all God's work. You don't get, dead people do not make themselves alive. So let's be clear on that part, right? When you move from death to life, it's not because um, you sort of bucked up and got on the train. You were dead and you were made alive. Had nothing to do with you. Had nothing to do with you. But to grow in holiness now, now that we have the Holy Spirit living within us by God making us alive, we do indeed are able to work with or against God, the Holy Spirit's work within us. So will we commit to lean in? Will we look at that place of deliverance and commit to do the things of prayer, of reading scripture, of meeting with the body? And I'm going to say it, there's stuff we do where you can implement that. There's men's and women's Bible studies. There's life groups. There's Sunday worship. These are the ways to lean in. And as we lean in, so the healing goes deeper. It's not always fun. It's not always easy. But it is the way. And then finally, as we are a people who are restored, renewed, healed, given life, given the broad horizons of liberty with God, we become people who are then the means of that for others. We don't get to keep it to ourselves. As we are healed, we become the means of healing. As we are given liberty, we become the means of God to give liberty to others. As we are restored and renewed, we become the means of God's restoring and renewing in the rest of the world. Maybe just in our own family. Maybe just in our own life group. Maybe in our own community. J.R. Packer put it this way. The task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible. Isn't that glorious? all the the truth of God and the majesty and the beauty and the strength and the amazing work of God that that we don't see and sense. The church's task is to make that visible to the world through faithful Christian living and witness bearing. By being the best Christian you know how to do and talking about Jesus as well as you possibly can. The good news of righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. Through a disciples living in the Lord, the church must make its message credible by manifesting the reality of kingdom life. So your healing, your restoration, your brokenness into which he speaks good news begins to be manifested, and the kingdom of
1: God makes progress. Whew.
0: In planning the church year, um, Advent and Christmas are sort of seen as big, heavy, uh, busy times. Lent and Easter as big, heavy, busy times. Epiphany is seen as sort of maybe this easier time in between. Uh, Not so much. (laughs) When God reveals himself, we are challenged about as much as any other time. And yet it is the deep healing we yearn for. It is the beauty and strength that the world yearns for. However stumbling and bumblingly, it gets implemented. This is our healing, and we become the means. Amen? Amen? Lord Jesus, we love you. Come in power amongst us, within us, amongst us, and through us. Do your work in the, the regular places, often unknown. If you take us into places of status, keep us humble. And if you don't, keep us humble. And we just do your work. And know your love and your restoration and your renewal. We will give you all the credit and all the glory.
1: In your name we pray. Amen.